Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, from housing to affordability to taxes to our province's debt deficit, we'll have the latest on BC budget and what it means to you and your family finances. Plus, the finance minister, Katrina Conroy, also drops by. And Land Act U-Turn, First Nation leaders set their sights on BC United and BC Conservative Opposition Parties, accusing them of derailing the Lands Act. And singing the wrong tune, should taxpayers be paying for a city council to travel to Halifax for the Juno Awards? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's get to it. Finance Minister Katrina Conroy rose in the legislature just over two hours ago and delivered the B.C. government's $89 billion budget. The bottom line, a massive deficit, a growing debt, and an election year budget packed with new spending, housing measures, and affordability initiatives. Here is Finance Minister Katrina Conroy. And as Finance Minister, I want you to know that when times are tough, our government works for you. We have your back. And we will continue taking action for you so more people feel hopeful about their future here. Some look at the challenges ahead and say government should respond with deep cuts, leaving people to fend for themselves. This would only weaken the services we all rely on and drive up costs with added fees and fares. It would leave people at risk to those who take unfair advantage by putting profits ahead of people. We see this in the current housing crisis. After decades where the housing market served the interests of investors and speculators, even those who earn a decent income are finding it hard to afford a home. And that doesn't sit well with our government. That was Finance Minister Katrina Conroy just a couple of hours ago. Lots to unpack here. Joining me now is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter, who was in the budget lockup earlier today. Richard, welcome. Hey, Jess. Thanks for having me. Let's go through the, the, the broad strokes here for a moment. Uh, the budget deficit, a $7.9 <laughs> billion dollar deficit in an election year. Uh, why do you think there was no thought or conversation in regards to belt tightening? Yeah, so I think there probably was a conversation about belt tightening, and ultimately the conclusion was British Columbians, the vast majority of them, would like to see this government ensure the services that they have relied on continue to be there and that they are expanded upon. You and I have talked about this a lot, Just 250,000 British Columbians have come here in the last few years. That is putting pressure on all sorts of services. And in order to help keep up with that, the province needs to spend. And ultimately, the conclusion was drawn by Finance Minister Katrina Conroy and Premier David Eby and their teams that the public doesn't see a huge issue with deficits if it means that services are preserved and that more things are coming around the corner. We've seen forecast deficits this big before. It came, you know, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. When the books were finally settled, uh, the deficit was nowhere close to the $7.9 billion that is now being forecast for next fiscal year. And we're not expecting in the next year some sort of economic rebound like we saw coming out of the pandemic. So Mm -hmm. this is likely going to be the biggest we have seen in the province's history And economists that I spoke to today, Jazz, we were just in the budget lockup where we had an opportunity to to talk to experts. All of them universally said, yes, you can spend now, but eventually those bills come due. And when they come due, they come with interest. And all of that puts exceeding pressure on future generations. So you are doing something now without 
a clear picture of the impacts that it's going to have on the future. So a $7.9 billion deficit. Let's look at the debt just for a moment. BC's total provincial debt is forecast to climb uh, by nearly $20 billion with this budget to $123 billion. Of that, about $88 billion of that is supported by taxpayers' rest by, uh, uh, you know, BC Hydro and many other agencies like that. The taxpayer-supported debt-to-GDP ratio uh, basically climbs to about 21%. That's, that, that measures debt affordability, uh, up from 17% last year. And to put that in context, budget 2018, the debt-to-GDP the, the debt ratio was 15.5%. So it's grown under the NDP. The NDP has clearly decided here, at the end of the day, uh, we're going to continue to spend on schools and hospitals and yeah. uh, too bad the opposition can complain. We think we're heading in the right direction. The other piece of that, and you mentioned debt is because of big capital projects. Big capital projects means jobs. We're going to see over the next year the three biggest private sector job uh, opportunities in this province go away because the projects are done. LNG Canada, Site C, completion of uh, Trans Mountain and other pipelines. And, and all of that, when I spoke to those that represent the business community today, they are concerned that there's nothing coming behind. There are no big major projects approved right now in this province that will help offset the loss in GDP and the loss in jobs that comes with those projects. And I asked the minister this, it seems to me and others that were Uh, looking at this budget, that the government plans on supporting those jobs in the economy through capital project job growth, public sector job growth. And that's concerning to a lot of economists that, yes, having a well-supported public sector capital project with, as you described, new schools and hospitals and roads is important, but also Encouraging private sector investment to the province is crucial. And Bridget Anderson for the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade, Ken Peacock from the BC Business Council say they don't just they don't see any signs here about what the province is doing to incentivize companies to come here and invest in British Columbia. And that's going to have a pretty significant long-term financial implication on BC. Well, you look at the LNG project alone in Kitimat, that's $36 billion. Two-thirds of that is being spent in Canada. and That's a lot of SkyTrain lines the public would have to build just to, to, to replicate that one project in regards to the economic spin-offs uh, for the province. But let's move on uh, beyond just economy. Uh, let's talk about uh, flipping tax. They've introduced uh, what I'm told is a 20% tax on profits now? Yeah, so there's a few different things here that are things we knew were coming from this government. So the flipping tax coming into effect uh, in 2025, it's a 20% tax. So if you buy a home Mm -hmm. and you sell it within a year, you are going to be docked a 20% tax on the profits you make from that that home. Then from year one to two, there's a, a sliding scale that goes down to zero. So if you sell your home, between 12 months and 24 months, you pay a tax lower than 20%, going closer to zero as you get closer to that 24-month period. The money goes directly uh, to um, affordable housing projects that the province is investing in. There are a bunch of exemptions around this, including you know family issues, uh, if there's a death or a divorce, or reasons why you may have to sell a home. Uh, Ultimately, this is to target the practice of people using Metro Vancouver's housing market 
as an investment. Uh, it's something that has been popular in polling. We'll see what it looks like in practice. I asked for some more specifics on it. I was told if you build you know, a new home on the site, then you're exempt from the flipping tax. But if you renovate a current home and move it within two years, then you have to pay the tax. Again, it's just on the profits. But as, as you know, you and I have discussed before, there are lots of small-scale developers in this province that have relied on helping the housing market by taking homes where people don't want to live, upgrading them, and then selling them. And it seems to me, if the home is still the same structure, that they're going to be caught under the flipping tax. I wonder what the repercussions uh, and ramifications of that will be. The other one that caught a lot of people off guard that is going to get a lot of talk is uh, funding in vitro fertilization in the province. BC has been behind so many other provinces mm -hmm. on this. So now the province starting next year will pay for one round of IVF to help people get pregnant. It's about $68 million, but it, it gets us you know, caught up with what we've seen in other jurisdictions. We're getting this electricity affordability credit, but Jazz, like this is a hundred bucks on average for hydro and forest customers over the entire year, it's going to be applied to your bill. So it's barely going to cover the cost of your fancy latte that I know you get all the time uh, because it's going <laughs> to be about guy, just eight, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be like eight or nine bucks a month uh, that will cover over the year. And I think what happened here is a premier EB was caught, you know, when Josie Osborne dropped yeah. that memo saying we're going to do this. And then they looked at the books at Hydra and said, okay, things are okay this year, but look at the drought we have down the road and we're going to start having to import energy. So we can't really be looked at tapping into BC Hydro for all it's worth and then say, oh, wait, by down the road, uh, we're going to have to start buying electricity at a much higher price. It would have been a long-term bad mistake. So I think EB got stuck in the middle here. Uh, having to sort of fulfill that promise and he's brought it in, but it's, it's a little bit less, I think that than anyone was really hoping for that, you know, a nice, you know, big rebate to show up uh, either on their next bill or, or a check in the mail. That's not coming. Richard, uh, let's touch a little bit on the uh, employer health tax, the business community, the small business community has been complaining about this a lot. looks like the government has actually been listening to them in, rega in regards to the payroll tax here. Yeah, halfway they've been listening. So this is so something that they've been calling for for a long time. But what business groups were calling for was the threshold to be raised to $1.5 million. They've gone halfway there. So leading into today, that threshold for the employer's health tax was $500,000. So businesses with payrolls at that point and lower uh, exempt from the tax. They're now expanding it to a million dollars, although the Greater Board of, uh, Vancouver Board of Trade and others were asking it to go to $1.5 million. It also means that 90% of businesses will not pay the tax. So for those small businesses that have been struggling with this, that have payrolls between $500,000 and a million dollars, this is big relief. This is going to help get through some of those challenges, but it also puts an added burden on those huge employers in the province. Yes, some of them are making big profits, but others may have big payrolls that are just struggling to get by. And this will continue to mean that they have pressure on them uh, to cover off this employer's health tax, which you'll remember the province brought in uh, to offset getting rid of medical service premiums. My guest is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. He was in the budget lockup today. Let's go to the open line. Let's go to John and Langley. Hi, John. Yes, good afternoon, gentlemen. I still don't understand why Mr. Eby refuses to budge on the carbon tax because this <laughs> is one of the main factors at a provincial level, a federal level, 
that is destroying this country and driving inflation and ruining the lives, the quality of lives of fellow Canadians. I, that, uh, with the budget the way it is, or the deficit rather, I can understand where the money's got to come from somewhere to a point. It was supposed to be neutral revenue anyway. But having said that, at least he could have modified it, taking it off of home heating gas fuel like to heat our homes. They're, they're not moving a bit. But in a fashion, that's not bad either, because I think this is the exit for Mr. Eby and the NDB government in this province. John, thanks for your call. I think he practiced that line. But he, John's got a <laughs> point, though, in regards to just, you know, working people are hit with this carbon tax. There is a climate action tax credit, isn't there, uh, Richard, in this case? Yeah, there is. And it helps offset some of that. We also saw investment in the budget uh, to get people off home oil uh, and towards heat pumps. That's a big commitment the province has made. They're going to work with the federal government uh, to make that transition free uh, for British Columbians who are currently on oil. That is going to take time. We're likely going to see that in the federal budget. But lucky for John, we have a provincial election coming up in October. And if this is his big issue, uh, there are two parties, BC United and the Conservative Party of BC, who have promised to make all sorts of changes around the carbon tax. Getting rid of it in B.C. right now, not possible with a Trudeau government. But if there's changes in Ottawa, we've heard from both John Rostad and Kevin Falcon, they would be very quick to get rid of the carbon tax here. And they would also offset some of those taxes on home heating, as John described. So lucky for him, there's an election coming up. But for now, this government is insistent. They believe, you know, the carbon tax, the way it is, uh, helps uh, fulfill climate targets in BC uh, while being uh, that affordability crunch is being offset through other measures like we saw in the budget. Richard, thank you. Thanks, Jess. The last couple of weeks, we've been uh, focusing on the issue of the Land Act. We've had uh, Nathan Cullen on the show, uh, and we've been talking about what this change in the Land Act uh, we could expect, what kind of changes we could expect, Mr. Cullen. Uh, and often talked about the fact that this does not give First Nations communities veto power, but this is a broader conversation in regards to this issue. But as you know, uh, earlier this week, uh, there was a U-turn by the NDP government in regards to moving forward uh, with this conversation. Now, Indigenous leaders say political opposition in our province derailed a plan that would have cleared the way for shared decision-making between the province and First Nations over the use of public land in their territories. Uh, and the criticism is directly uh, pointed at the BC United Party and BC Conservatives. Joining me now to talk a little bit about this U-turn by the NDP is Grand Chief Stuart Phillip, President of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs. Grand Chief uh, Phillip, thank you so much for joining us today. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, express to me your thoughts, first of all, on, on, on what the NDP did and, 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 and why you think they did what they did. Well, it's, um, it's frustrating. It's annoying that uh, both the Conservatives and the NDP saw fit to obstruct some um, incredibly important work in regard to uh, creating a sense of economic certainty throughout the province of BC and leaving behind the millions and millions of dollars that have been wasted on court cases, uh, the disruption of major resource projects through all kinds of conflict on the land. The amendments to the Land Act were simply um, designed to, in many ways, streamline the act and bring together a more harmonious decision-making process, which includes First Nations 
um, in the decisions that, that come to pass in regard to large-scale resource development projects, uh, uh, municipal planning, and and many of the issues, emergency management is a prime example, mm-hmm. given the, you know, the catastrophic effects of the climate crisis. Now, do you think the government has some blame in this in regards to bringing along not just the opposition, but the British Columbians in general broadly as part of this conversation? Uh, do you think perhaps the government could have handled this a little bit better? No. No, I don't believe that for a moment. Uh, you and I have known each other for a very long time, mm-hmm. and um, I'm sure you were on deck when the Campbell government declared the new relationship mm-hmm. and brought forward the Recognition and Reconciliation Act proposal, and it met with the same response from business and industry, the BC Business Council, uh, mining, forestry, uh, they immediately lit their hair on fire and started putting out a lot of inflammatory statements that, similar to this instance, were totally inaccurate. Uh, they weren't true. It was fear-mongering at its worst. And here we go again with uh, round two, mm-hmm. uh, some you know, 20 years later, um, you know, it's it's the same characters, it's the same suspects that are involved in this, uh, you know, this uh, nonsense. Grand Chief, uh, it was uh, Kevin Falcon, leader of the BC United, who said, uh, quote, his party could not support giving veto power to 5% of the population with, Im- which, with impacts to over 95% of the public lands. Uh, B.C. Conservative leader John Rustad uh, uh, called the government's plan, quote, an assault on private property rights. Uh, if this is where these two opposition parties stand in regards to this issue, what happens next? Uh, I mean, there were some even you know legal firms who deal with Aboriginal law who expressed their concerns about uh, how you know big of a change this would have been moving forward. Uh, some of them expressed concerns about how transparent it was. Uh, where do we go from here then, moving forward? Well, I can't help but uh, respond to your uh, reflection on the legal community raising uh, concerns. Uh, they did the very same thing with the R&R legislative proposal under the Campbell government. Mm-hmm. In fact, 14 lawyers signed a very inflammatory statement and and released it to the media. Uh, quite frankly, uh, Indigenous uh, land rights issues comprise an enormous part of the legal work that law firms undertake in this province. And in the event that we do achieve uh, a land management act that is acceptable by business and industry and indigenous peoples, we won't be knocking on the doors of the legal community to help resolve conflict because the legislation, the policy framework, uh, the procedures will look after that without going to court. Um, without uh, is this just a small uh, hurdle at this point in regards to what's transpired, or do you think this holds back 
the ability for, for First Nations and non-First Nations to move forward collectively. Some have said, look, they're going to restart this process. Perhaps it'll be a bit different. Uh, others would say, look, this has held us back and will hold us back for a long, a long period. What's your assessment? Well, no, uh, quite frankly, no, not at all. Um, the uh, UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples the DRIPA Act that was passed by the B.C. legislature unanimously are major significant events in the uh, the constitutional and legal history of the province of British Columbia. And um, they are essential for us to move forward, to turn the page of the colonial, neo-colonial racist notions that some people carry, and they, the work of reconciliation is too important, too important to all British Columbians, the future of our children and grandchildren, to simply be uh, deterred by a handful of malcontents that carry racist notions about Indigenous peoples. Grand Chief, a final question to you. Can uh, the First Nations community, and that's a broad community, and I understand not everybody's going to agree on everything, and it's like any other community, but can the First Nations community, do they trust and do they feel they can work with, in your mind, Kevin Falcon and John Rustad moving forward? Uh, quite frankly, the short answer is no, absolutely not. Um, I think they've um, demonstrated that uh, neither of those leaders are fit to form government, given the regressive views they have, uh, which will really undermine uh, the economy and destroy opportunities for the uh, various groups in this province to come together and work together. Grand Chief, as always, great to hear your voice. Look forward to chatting with you in the future very soon. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Let's revisit our top story, that being, of course, the uh, B.C. budget for this year. Uh, Finance Minister Katrina Conroy rose in the legislature about three hours ago and delivered uh, B.C.'s $89 billion budget. That's the operating uh, budget. There's a massive deficit and a growing debt that comes with that, $7.9 billion deficit uh, upcoming. Uh, I remember, as I was saying in my earlier days as a reporter, a two billion dollar two billion dollar deficit was a big was was a big story, big news. We're talking on just a sliver under eight billion dollars when it comes to the deficit. Uh, our debt climbs by twenty billion dollars. That goes to one hundred and twenty three billion dollars. Not all of that is paid for by taxpayers, but uh, some of them will be our crown uh, corporations as well, including BC Hydro. Now, servicing the debt will climb as well. Uh, each year, it's now four point one billion dollars per year. That's up from about three point three uh, billion dollars. Now, with that, of course, there was an announcement today of a home flipping tax. Yes, uh, the finance minister announced that uh, earlier today. Here's Katrina Conroy. Budget 2024 will bring in the new BC home flipping tax. To those who just want to make a quick buck by flipping homes, things are about to get more difficult. If a home is sold within two years of purchase, the profit will be taxed. And the revenue will go right back into building middle-class homes for people. 
So there's lots there in this budget. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about in vitro fertilization at 430. There's also uh, issues around BC Hydro, uh, funding that TransLink was looking for as well. But the numbers matter, the deficit, the debt, uh, the servicing that debt. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the broad numbers from this uh, budget is Ken Peacock, Senior Vice President and Chief Economist for the Business Council of British Columbia. Ken, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Your thoughts? You were in the budget lockup. Uh, you saw those numbers. You know how to crunch those numbers. You tell me what 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 was sort of sticking out for you. Uh, with the things that you touched upon at the outset, a few of them definitely jumped out at me. Uh, notably, the size of the deficit. You are correct. That is a large deficit, much larger than I, I anticipated, just given the spending pressures and the fact it was a pre-election budget. Fully expected some deficit. But uh, pushing $8 billion uh, it was much larger than expected. And then in the subsequent two years, uh, large deficits uh, those, those years as well. Uh, not quite as big, but still, it really changes the outlook for, for BC's uh, debt and debt servicing costs. And just before I, I stop there, just, I would note the capital spending is also an element uh, adding substantially to debt, but I'll, but I'll pause there. So in your mind, uh, would you and the business community like to have seen just a, a greater belt tightening or any belt tightening here? Sure, this is, this is an interesting point. Uh, the, the minister in the, her comments quite often indicated that they were not going to cut and, and reduce spending. But, so I, I think there is a, some in-between ground there. You can have a, a large spending increases, but it doesn't mean that the alternative is cutting. You can have more restrained increases. And I think, I think that would have been welcome. And also, given the amount of spending and the size of the deficit, it would have also been welcome to see a little bit more directed towards some tax measures, some uh, improved competitiveness, some steps to help attract capital investment and, and grow employment, especially considering the lackluster private sector job growth we have. Uh, you've raised that issue before, the lackluster private sector job growth. Uh, Richard Dustman and I were talking during the 3 o'clock hour. You've got uh, uh, the LNG Canada project uh, that, of course, is part of building that uh, natural gas pipeline from our northeast to our northwest, plus the plant itself in Kitimat. That's a $36 billion project, and two-thirds of the dollars there are actually being spent in Canada. You've got the, the TMX pipeline. Um, you've got Site C. All those projects are coming to a close. Uh, that's a lot of folks working. That's a lot of tax and PST being paid. Uh, lots of people generating uh, just re- generating you know economic activity in this province. But those projects are wrapping up. What do you see moving forward in regards to sort of our the government's finances when those projects are gone? Yeah, I think what you're seeing exactly uh, right right now in real time with this budget what the implications are, and that is. Uh, as you indicated, these are very large projects delivering a substantial amount of income and activity in the province. And, and as they wind down, there's this sort of whole uh, de- decrease in economic activity. Precisely, there's not a whole bunch on the horizon to fill that void. And I think as a result, you're seeing those pressures emerge here in this budget. And if I can use the term, we've got a situation where we're in a structural deficit. So we're just not generating enough economic growth and revenue uh, to cover the costs of services here in the province. And the winding down of the projects and the slow growth outlook 
combined with the, the the pressures, the spending pressures are exactly what what we see in today's budget. So, so I mean, somewhere along the way, do you think the, that whether it's the NDP or BC United or BC Conservatives or BC Greens, we're walking towards slow walking towards a fiscal reckoning here? We the big challenge, Jazz, is that. Yes, it's not a fiscal reckoning in the sense that, you know, markets are no longer going to finance bonds from the province or anything like that. But it's a fiscal reckoning in the sense it gets more and more difficult to get to get out of this structural deficit. Um, you, you know, it, it, well, to, to turn uh, turn it around, we are going to have to address the competitiveness, attract more business investment, more capital um, and, and look at reducing some of the onerous tax burden and tax uh, rate rates on on businesses and and individuals for that matter, but it gets more and more difficult to do that because when you reduce taxes, taxes you reduce revenue, and when you're in this elevated spending environment, then you are into real tax or sorry real service cuts rather than just kind of restraint. Um, so it, 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 not yet, but it's it's within sight. It's a few years off. I would say, Jeff. Uh, this is a tough one to ask because you, you, you know, yesterday we did a story on millennials for the first time outnumbering uh, baby boomers, and as that you know gr- uh, that cohort grows, they're, they're going to play a bigger role in regards to some of their generation's priorities. Not that priorities aren't uh, housing isn't a priority for senior citizens. Or, or those even younger than millennials, but they're going to play a role in all of this. So you have this government that wants to uh, certainly attract them as voters and focus on their needs. Uh, the, the, the Premier and the Prime Minister uh, earlier this week talked about uh, the, the missing middle and, you know, that, that 85 to 185,000 sort of uh, income, person income and family income. Mm-hmm. You have that sort of pull of that generation that is growing. Yet someone like yourself, like myself, who have seen this game before 20, 25 years ago, where you know a government came in and cut pretty deeply initially to deal with some of these challenges. I mean, are we sort of – there's a generational conflict going on, I believe. You're seeing some of that. And then on top of that, all the issues that you're raising are, I believe, to be very true. But how do we sort of square that circle in regards to addressing some of these generational challenges at the same time? The fiscal challenge is still being there as well. Yeah, you've you've asked a, a challenging question there. The generational bit, um, it's it's very very difficult to say. I, I don't have any any good answer for you. Mm-hmm. But the the fiscal the the fiscal part is is going to be a challenge. I, I will say when you go through this budget, one thing that is evident is that the, the spending pressures are in large part being driven by population growth. Mm-hmm. So this is this is the challenge that the government faces: the rapid population growth. And if you if you look at the line items in the budget, where you see big spending lifts, you see it in healthcare, very large, four billion dollars more. Uh, you see it in education. So where there's these counts of individuals and uh, and service delivery, that is where a lot of the additional spending has been directed. So in that sense, uh, the government is challenged because it just has this massive population growth to deal with. At the same time, we need to pay more attention to the economic growth, expanding the tax base side, and there's less attention being paid to that. Ken, as always, thank you for your time. Thank you, Jeff. Whenever we talk budgets, we always, of course, look at the numbers. We've been talking about the deficit, $7.9 billion. We're talking about the debt, $123 billion. There's lots of spending issues around 
uh, hydro and education and healthcare, of course. But within um, this announcement today, there was $34 million announced for the in vitro fertilization program. Joining me now to talk a little bit about IVF and this announcement today uh, is a fertility coach, Laura Spencer. Laura, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, your reaction, first of all, to this new program and this money being set aside for IVF? I mean, I'm thrilled. This is fantastic. A long time coming, but this will be life-changing for so many British Columbians. So I'm, I'm thrilled. Mm-hmm. And so for our audience, what this means is, uh, I mean, the program will have to be set up, but basically government is saying we will pay for a single cycle of in vitro, in vitro fertilization. Um, right. do, and, uh, and, and for our audience, how many pro- do you know how many provinces are doing this right now? So right now, Ontario is doing it and Quebec is doing something very similar. But every other every province except Alberta and Saskatchewan has some kind of IVF funding program. I see. Uh, and what's the cost of IVF in, here in British Columbia? If a couple are having difficulty uh, having children, what's the cost if they wanted to go through IVF? Well, on average, it's about $20,000, and that's because you don't necessarily just need one. You might actually need multiple, or you need some extra testing or screening and things like that. So it varies from person to person, but it's thousands of dollars, yeah. How um, big of a challenge is it in this province? And I just want to get a sense of, of scope a little bit here. How, how, how big of a challenge is it here in our province? We don't have those exact numbers. What we do know is across Canada, one in six. Mm-hmm. But because BC actually has some of the, has the highest rate of infertility in pockets of it um, across the country, we probably have it higher. And it also doesn't include some people like you know single moms by choice, um, that kind of thing. So it's there are a lot of people impacted. You, you probably know someone if you if they haven't disclosed it to you. It might be a mystery. You know, you might not know it. It's private mm-hmm. to them. But most people know somebody who has been through infertility or has infertility. If someone were to come to you as a fertility coach, how long is the process to go through an IVF cycle? Well, the process can take a while. Um, first of all, there are many reasons to go through IVF, but if it is say circumstantial infertility, then you know that you're going to have that as an option right away. Whereas somebody who can try at home and, you know, they're under 35, they've been trying for a year, then you're technically diagnosed with infertility. And then you start looking at your options. Then you're going through the process of picking your fertility clinic. And then it's going to be a few months um, potentially waiting. And then the cycle itself takes about eight weeks on average. So it, when you add it all up, it's it's all a, it's a long adventure. <laughs> it is, um, and and we have very stringent rules and regulations around in vitro fertilization, um, and this has been done done over many many years. I remember years ago when I was based as a reporter in India, that sometimes you'd see Canadians and Americans coming to India because it was cheaper there to to, to get IVF. Mm. But the rules here. Uh, I would believe are much more stringent in regards to the cycles and all of those types of things. Um, the, in regards to couples dealing with I, uh, IVF and just you know trying to conceive, a lot of this I guess has to do with a you know obviously health, but the other I guess is women are also working longer too, are they not in their careers? And sometimes you end up starting families later too, right? Absolutely, that that has an impact for for some people, um, and also you know the cost of living. You want to make sure that you have enough funds or yeah you get you know far enough along in your career where you can afford it 
um, a child, whether it's, we call it a free baby or through IVF eventually might find out that out. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, absolutely. People are having, you know, trying to have children a little bit later um, than they, they used to. So that does, that does have an impact. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is the funding enough in your mind? I've I've looked at different numbers. Some have said there's about 1,800 couples in BC uh, that could potentially be helped in this. And I would argue there's probably, as you say, one in six. There could be a lot more than that. Uh, Is $34 million enough to to, to help uh, for, in regards to helping couples who want to go through one cycle of IVF? Sorry, I misspoke. It's not one in six who need IVF. It's one in six who go through infertility. And there are plenty of people who go through infertility, but IVF isn't the treatment they need. Yeah, I misspoke. So, I mean, that makes sense, um, those those numbers. Although the the IVF program right now, it's not going to actually affect those people necessarily. If you need IVF, you're going through it now. You're not going to wait. You want to get pregnant as soon as you can. So People who are eligible in April 2025, those aren't those people necessarily who are waiting right now. Mm-hmm. It's for the it's for the future. But absolutely, there are plenty of people, including myself and my husband, who need more than one cycle of IVF. Sometimes the first cycle, you don't get any em- embryos. Sometimes there's an issue, and you need to readjust and do a second cycle. Mm-hmm. So a lot of different a lot of different scenarios in terms of how much. Um, it costs some, the medication is much more than another person's cycle. So I would argue, and I hope that the advisory council when they're, you know, actually implementing this, consider those couples who do require more than one cycle. And there are lots of different scenarios to make this work. Maybe it's tied to, to income, um, but there's a way to make sure that the money's going to the right place. And in other provinces, Ontario, I think, led the way in this country in regards to praying for the first cycle of IVF. Uh, There is a wait list, is there not? I mean, it's a very popular program. Um, um, The reason that's why I asked you the previous question is $34 to me says once this is known and and there's marketing of it, uh, one could easily argue $34 may not be enough and it may lead to long waiting lists. It might impact waiting lists. There, obviously, the population is quite different in Ontario versus BC. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, there is there is a, there's going to be a demand, and that will increase, but not too much. I mean, IVF isn't something that's like, oh, I'll just give it a try. Oh, it's just something I'll just do. It doesn't work like that. It's a very grueling process, mentally, emotionally, physically. Mm-hmm. So it's something if you if if it's medically necessary, if it, if you're a candidate and you decide to that's your route um, because of, you know, advice from your doctor, then you're going to be doing that if you can afford it. And in this case with the IVF program, because the, the government funds it. Um, but there's definitely, it's not something where all of a sudden the floodgates are going to open and there are so many more people wanting to do IVF. I don't think that's going to happen. And it's interesting. I, even the, the finance minister got quite emotional uh, when she made the announcement today on part of her speech. And, and it, this is really going to change lives, isn't it, at the end yes. of the day, those who are able to get funding for, for, for a cycle of IVF? It is life-changing. I mean, I shed tears. It's, it is life-changing. This is the difference between somebody being able to have a baby and not, or like having a sibling for their current child or not. Like it's, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. Well, Laura, uh, uh, congratulations to you and the entire community who's been advocating for all of this. And uh, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jazz. I appreciate the attention on this. 
revisit uh, our top story. Uh, that, of course, is the budget. Uh, Finance Minister Katina Conroy rose in the legislature well, just over, I guess, four hours ago uh, and delivered B.C. government's $89 billion budget, which included a $7 billion deficit, a whopping $7.9 billion deficit. As I was saying earlier, uh, Ted Field, as you were speaking, I remember my early days as a reporter, a $2 billion deficit was considered big. This is $7.9 billion. Um, the debt itself climbs $20 billion to $123 billion. Uh, and servicing that debt uh, will cost $4.1 billion per year, and that's up from $3.3 billion. Here is Finance Minister Katrina Conroy. And as Finance Minister, I want you to know that when times are tough, our government works for you. We have your back. And we will continue taking action for you so more people feel hopeful about their future here. Some look at the challenges ahead and say government should respond with deep cuts, leaving people to fend for themselves. This would only weaken the services we all rely on and drive up costs with added fees and fares. It would leave people at risk to those who take unfair advantage by putting profits ahead of people. We see this in the current housing crisis. After decades where the housing market served the interests of investors and speculators, even those who earn a decent income are finding it hard to afford a home. And that doesn't sit well with our government. That was uh, Finance Minister Katrina Conroy basically saying uh, they're moving ahead and uh, they're not going to be making any uh, deep cuts. Uh, and as I said, the debt continues to grow. The deficit is at $7.9 billion. Joining me now to talk about today's budget is Bridget Anderson, President and CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. Bridget, welcome. Thanks very much, Jess. Uh, you were in the lockup. Your thoughts uh, in regards to what you heard from the Finance Minister today? Well, overall, we did see some relief today, particularly for small businesses, but concern about tomorrow. You know, for many months now, we've been talking about the $6.5 billion in additional government-imposed costs that small, medium businesses have been dealing with over the last couple of years. And so we went to government over the last many months, and our number one ask was to increase the EHT threshold to $1.5 million. So we did see the threshold increase to a million dollars, which we will we were pleased to see because this means about a hundred million dollars in savings. And again, particularly for those small businesses that are still really struggling post pandemic. We were also quite pleased to see the one year electricity credit, about four and a half percent for businesses. But we remain concerned about this low growth environment and high costs that really have businesses struggling with affordability. So, I mean, looking at your crystal ball here for the next two or three years, we had Ken Peacock on earlier from the Business Council of British Columbia. He expressed concerns over, you know, we've got three major projects uh, in the interior in the north with the, the TMX pipeline. We have uh, uh, Site C. We also have the LNG Canada project, all of them wrapping up significant amount of spend here in British Columbia and paychecks here in British Columbia. Those go away probably next year. I mean, what needs to change in your mind in regards to what governments do? doing uh, to not have to deal with what many have saying is a fiscal reckoning that's coming down. Well, that's exactly where our concern is for our members at the Board of Trade. You know, the fiscal track is getting a post-pandemic dose of reality, if you will. You mentioned the capital projects that are coming to completion. So that is tens of thousands of jobs. We're seeing unprecedented population growth in British Columbia. And so we need the private sector to to be able to invest, for government to create the conditions to be able to do that. 
Yes, we need services for the population growth and the future population growth from public sector investment, but we are saying private sector investment needs to be um, accelerated. And so how do how does government create those conditions, really making it uh, a, a lower cost jurisdiction than it is now, removing some of the regulatory challenges that many of these projects uh, are facing that cost delays and delays, of course, mean not only time, but they mean money. So that's really what we were hoping to see in the budget and didn't see that. Um, we are definitely concerned about the debt and the, the deficit that we're seeing those increases. And, and the question then for government is, you know, how is this sustainable for the future for a province? Uh, and, and I want to touch on that a, a little bit here. I mean, would you have just preferred if the deficit was significantly smaller? And that would have meant tougher, tough decisions to make in regards to where you cut or where you defer projects. Do you want to see more of that then? Well, and this is the challenge for government, and, and, and I, we do recognize it. With seeing the unprecedented population growth, as we're saying, 300,000 people in British Columbia just in the last two years alone, that you know now is the time to ensure that we're investing in services and infrastructure to to be able to deal with this growth. But we are seeing low growth. Let's be clear. You know, British Columbia has led the pack in growth in Canada for many years. For this year and next year, we're at the back of the pack for Canada. So what is the plan to attract investment? What is the plan to create the conditions so that those project decisions are going to be made, whether it's, you know, the second phase of LNG Canada or whether it's other big projects when they're looking to put their dollars somewhere are they choosing to put them in British Columbia as opposed to other provinces or other countries? Now, the real estate industry uh, here in Vancouver uh, has been struggling, like many jurisdictions, with a high interest rate environment. Um, there is now a 20% tax on profits, essentially a flipping tax. Uh, and I don't need you to go do a deep dive into the real estate industry. That's not what you do. <laughs> but do you think it, uh, to a certain degree, um, does hinder and once again create that climate that says we do not want entrepreneurs? Well, here's the struggle. Um, our members have been saying for many years that the uh, their ability to attract and retain talent is completely correlated to the high cost of housing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we do need a lot more housing in supply and uh, to come onto the supply to be able to, to reach this demand. The government has introduced a host of legislation, which we've talked about over the last many months. It's a little too early to say, is that going to start to change the trend? So a speculation of flipping tax, does that actually get more housing into the market? We can't say that yet. So we need more housing into the market and we need more housing that is affordable for especially for those middle income earners. Uh, In regards to just the BC Electricity Affordability Credit, you mentioned uh, it does help small businesses. Would you like to have seen perhaps the credit to be a little little bit bigger for not only just small businesses, for individuals as well? We would have loved to have seen more relief for businesses overall. I mean, we, you know, often we think about business as being something that is uh, separate from individuals and families. Well, businesses are the ones that employ, employ individuals and families. And so one of the many asks that we've had of government for some time are what kind of incentives could be there so that businesses can continue to grow and invest in their operations and their people, whether it would be uh, an incentive uh, around machinery or software or PST credit, those kinds of actions that really do spur on um, a company to be able to take more risk and to grow. So, yes, we would have liked to see more, but I, I will acknowledge the government 
did hear the concerns from the business community around the EHT. We didn't get one and a half million in the threshold <laughs> increase, but we got to one million. And that is $100 million in relief for businesses at a time where they are really struggling. I know we have a different grading system now in our schooling system than perhaps when you and I were, <laughs> when you and I were growing up. But if you were to give a grade, old school grade, <laughs> to, for this budget, what grade would you give it? Well, and we did. And we went old school. We had a conversation of whether, whether we went with this new system, but I can't actually understand it yet well enough. So uh, we look at three different buckets, uh, and we gave it an overall C to recognize the fact that government did hear the concerns from businesses on the employer health tax, but our concerns remain about the sustainability for increasing debt and deficit and around economic vision, the economic growth and private sector investment. As always, Bridget, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, Jess. If you're just joining us, we were speaking to Bridget Anderson, President and CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. Uh, the Board of Trade gave the budget a C, uh, but there's lots of stuff in there. Um, there was talk of IVF as well. Uh, we talked about that at um, the, the 4.30 hour. Uh, we had the Business Council of British Columbia on as well. They expressed their concerns in regards to where government finances are going. And we talked a little bit about a fiscal reckoning. There was also a mention uh, in regards to BC Hydro and a rebate uh, potentially uh, for um, everyday folks, uh, taxpayers, and of course, businesses as well. Here's Finance Minister Katrina Conroy talking about the electricity affordability credit. In an expensive world, Budget 2024 takes targeted action to keep more money in your pocket. A new BC electricity affordability credit will save seniors, families, and individuals an average of $100 on their household bills over the next year. And the average small businesses will save around $400 over the year. The credits will appear on bills from March to next day, from April to next March. A uh, hundred bucks uh, back in your pocket for a full year. How about that? <laughs> I find it actually quite amusing. I'm not even sure that would have been offered if uh, uh, Energy Minister Josie Osborne had lost that uh, important document uh, in, in the halls of the legislature and the opposition found it. Well, let's talk to a guy who knows energy and what this all means. His name is Barry Penner, of course. He's the chair for the Energy Futures Initiative. Barry, welcome. Hey, thanks, Jess. Uh, walk me through this. What do you think about this credit? Well, I certainly understand the political desire uh, to provide short-term financial relief to ratepayers across BC with this uh, $100 credit for individuals on power bills. But uh, if you dig a deeper into the budget documents, you can see that greater financial pain might well be on the way for Why is BC that? Hydro ratepayers. Why is that? Uh, the uh, service plan that BC Hydro released in the, along with the budget today showed that they went from expecting a surplus in operating revenue of $709 million last year to a loss of $55 million. That's a swing of $764 million over what they had expected last year. And that's before they do their uh, ins and outs with these deferral accounts that you're familiar with, mm-hmm. you know, a, a series of accounting maneuvers. But mm-hmm. if you just look at the operating costs, they ended up with a very significant financial loss. And that's because BC Hydro had to import one-fifth or about 20% of all of the electricity required here in BC to keep our lights on. That was a record amount of imports. And when you look at what they're expecting for this year, the the coming year, they say that they're anticipating uh, water inflows into the reservoirs to be 100% of normal. Well, if they aren't, well, then we're going to have another year of having to import large amounts of electricity. 
And I'm a little surprised they're expecting 100% of normal because uh, for this year, because just two weeks ago, we heard that the latest snowpack survey across the province revealed that, in fact, we're about 40% below where we should be for this time of year. And that's twice as bad as things looked at this time last year. Last year, they were about 20% below average. This year, snowpacks are 40% below average. And we know what happened last year. BC Hydro had to import record amounts of electricity. Mm -hmm. So I'm concerned that unless we got a, a real deluge and soon with lots of mountain snow, we're going to be importing more electricity. And ultimately, those costs will have to be reflected in the hydro bills that get sent to customers in the future. So the and I haven't even mentioned mm -hmm. I haven't even mentioned the impact on rates that will come once the $16 billion Site C dam has to start being paid for. And that'll probably start kicking in next year. So, and that, and we don't have a final number for that yet. Is it $16 billion, I think, the last number that was public? Correct me if I'm wrong. Here. Yeah, they're still holding to that number. That's in the service plan, again, that they just looked at in the BC Hydro service plan for this coming year. They're still holding to $16 billion as their estimate. Um, but anyway, you slice it. We haven't started paying for that. That's been sheltered off in one of these, what I've, I've just mentioned, these accounting or deferral accounts. Yes. It's been kind of shielded over there. Well, once you start generating electricity, and BC Hydro's plan is for that to start happening the end of this year in December, mm -hmm. uh, I believe then the uh, cost of that debt, that $16 billion of borrowed money, has to start being paid for through the rate base. And so you can expect uh, upward pressure in rates uh Sometime starting maybe as early as next year. So the hundred dollars you receive as an individual moving forward is going to cover that, or for for individual or for businesses, the four hundred that they're going to receive. Well, I guess you can do the math. Uh, <laughs> I think that hundred dollars will be gone pretty quickly. Um, so how and, do I... and, and again, they're they're asking the corporation to do this in a year when they just reported a fifty-five million dollar operating loss. Uh, so moving forward, how do you budget? Uh, in regards to just not only for the for, for BC Hydro, but in regards to how do you keep deal with these costs when it comes to your for for for, for ratepayers like individuals or for businesses, and we haven't even yet talked about potentially one day some of that energy being used for for the LNG industry or or mining. Yes, there is. Uh, you know, we're not awash in electricity. Uh, many British Columbians have come to think that we are, uh, but the, the truth is we're running up against constraints. I think I heard you mention uh, when you're talking to Rick McCandless yesterday um, about financial impacts to BC Hydro. You had mentioned that BC Hydro is not supplying electricity right now to uh, cryptocurrency miners. Yes. Uh, there was a recent court case where the company that was denied connection to BC Hydro and, and access to a couple hundred megawatts of electricity was told no. They went to court and the judge said, OK, we're, we're going to support BC Hydro saying not now. Uh, and pointed to the fact that government says they're going to come up with a framework to help allocate our limited supply of electricity to new requests, to, to industrial requests. Um, we haven't seen that framework yet, uh, but I think we're going to need one to try and decide who gets electricity in the future because we don't have enough to do everything that the government is calling for, yeah. such as in, in less than six years from now, 90% of all vehicles sold are supposed to be electric vehicles, according to the Clean BC plan. Uh, that's going to require additional amounts of electricity. Yeah. And as noted, the government, uh, BC Hydro is already saying no to some people wanting electricity because we just don't have enough to go around. 
Yeah, that's that's it's interesting. Site C is supposed to power four hundred fifty thousand homes. It sounds great when uh, in a press release, but okay, does that mean it doesn't power? Any industry that's going to ask for power, you can't have both. And you're right; you brought up the issue in the crypto folks as well. I'm sure for most British Columbians, it's better focus on uh, powering businesses that create local jobs. And crypto probably isn't going to create a lot of jobs compared to a mine, uh, uh, compared to an LNG facility. So the priorities uh, are going to be in different places. And then you add to that, like you said, uh, we, they want us all in EVs by 2035, and I think you need two or three site C's just to deal with all the power that's supposed to be needed for for EVs. So there's a lot of challenges ahead. And uh, whatever rate increase there is, it's going to be more than $100 that we're getting back for from this budget, that's for sure. Barry, as always, thank you so much for your time. Look forward to chatting with you soon. You bet. You're welcome. To, today, of course, the Finance Minister Katrina Conroy rose in the legislature and delivered BC government's $89 billion uh, budget, as we talked about, $7.9 billion deficit. Our uh, debt grows by $20 billion to $123 billion, and servicing that debt uh, climbs to $4.1 billion, up from three point three. Uh, billion dollars. We talked a lot about obviously um, the employer health tax threshold going up. We've talked about the impact on BC Hydro Credit. Uh, we just had uh, Barry Penner on. We've had the BC Business Council of BC, uh, Bridget Anderson also joining us, the Metro Vancouver Board of Trade. Um, we also talked about IVF for the first time, uh, the government covering the first cycle of IVF. Uh, but within that budget, there's um, a lot of other uh, spending announcements. Uh, the operating budget, as, as we said, will climb by over $6 billion to 18 billion with another get this 18.7 billion dollars earmarked for capital projects. So joining me now to talk about um, TransLink and, of course, transit needing help because guess what? Ridership is uh, up to where it was pre-COVID and there is significant demand, of course, on our transit system. Brad West is chair of the TransLink Mayor's Council uh, on Regional Transportation. He's also the mayor of Port Coquitlam and he joins us now. Brad, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Uh, lots of folks uh, talking uh, about the budget today, and, and there's lots of needs out there. Your overall assessment of how uh, TransLink and Transit did uh, with this budget? Well, uh, thin. There was no additional funding for mm-hmm. transit needs in Metro Vancouver. And as we've discussed in the past, uh, those needs are growing very quickly. We're at a record level of uh, ridership, particularly in some of the fastest growing parts of our region. Uh, Service levels have essentially remained frozen since 2019. So, you know, you're going on now five years with no expansion of transit service in Metro Vancouver. And of course, what has happened in the past five years? Well, our population has grown by leaps and bounds. And so uh, the mayors have been raising that alarm, uh, trying to draw attention to that. Uh, I'm um, hopeful that in the next couple of weeks, we can come to an agreement with the provincial government on what uh, their support of transit in our region will look like. Because if we don't, uh, the alternative is that TransLink is going to have to start in the magnitude of 60%, which would take uh, effect and in just under two years. And, you know, the point I want to make, uh, and I think it's important people understand this, TransLink is the province. The province it has set up TransLink. It's created by provincial legislation. The mayors have a very, very... We don't control the organization, but what we're trying to do is get the needs of our region addressed. And uh, 
you know, we're, we're doing the best we can, but uh, it feels like we're push and rope a lot of the time. I just lost you there just for a brief moment there. Uh, sorry, if, tra- if, if funding doesn't come, new funding doesn't arrive from the federal or provincial government here, uh, sorry, did you say you, you'd have to potentially cut? That's, that's right. TransLink would then have to look at service reductions uh, in the magnitude of 60%, because right now they are funded on the basis of an investment plan that, that runs until 2025. And if there's no new investment plan in its place, then it, it will be in a position where it's going to have to reduce service. And, and the point I was making is that the province has a huge responsibility here. They created TransLink. Mm-hmm. They control the TransLink board of directors. The mayors have a very narrow role here. We don't control TransLink. We certainly uh, only have a few things that we're responsible for, and that's primarily to come up with a plan that addresses the needs of our region. We've done that unanimously, and really now the ball is in the court of the province to, and the federal government, but particularly of the province to work with us and figure out, you know, how we begin to roll out some of these improvements. Why would there be a 60% cut? Uh, I can see, you know, if, if with inflation, a 3% cut, a 5% cut, even a 10% cut with the growth that you were talking about. But why 60%? Well, those are TransLink, TransLink's numbers. They come from them. And it's because the investment plan that they are currently operating out of uh, comes to an end in 2025. And if there's nothing that uh, takes its place, uh, that is the type of service reduction that uh, they'll need to look at. And again, you know, those numbers come from TransLink. Uh, that's the information they're providing to the mayors and the province. Uh, and, and that's what they say they're going to be faced with. Uh, you've also uh, traveled to Ottawa uh, and made the same pitch there. Uh, any indication from the federal government that, they, that they're willing to help? Because one of the arguments I think they, they could make is, well, if we help, help Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, Calgary, all our major cities are going to be lining up looking for uh, their portion of funding as well. Uh, any indication from the feds that they're interested in providing any financing? Not really. They've been very MIA from all of these discussions, uh, which I think is not appropriate because so much of the demand is being driven by decisions that they have made with respect to immigration and uh, population increase. A lot of those stem from decisions that are made in Ottawa, and then they kind of just wash their hands of dealing with the the impacts of all of that. Uh, The current federal government has said that They are going to look to bring in place a permanent transit fund, which would provide some level of predictable funding, which is a good thing. However, they've been saying for several years now, oh, we're not going to look at rolling that out until 2026. We have said, look, the needs are now. Surely we can find a a way to advance what you already say you're going to do, but just have it come in effect, you know, a couple years earlier. And, uh, you know, you get a lot of uh, red tape and bureaucracy and non-answers as to why that's uh, not possible. Well, I wish you luck. Uh, you got uh, a, a lot uh, of demand, certainly, for transit. It's back to its uh, pre-COVID levels. Uh, and uh, you still will need to, a lot more dollars to, to move forward. I know you have the SkyTrain line out to Langley. That's still being funded. Uh, but the growth is significant throughout the region. You definitely will need some dollars there. Brad, as always, thanks for your time. Thank you very much for having me, Jess.
Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time. season of 911 on a new night Thursday March 14th on Global Stream on Stack TV